is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Our next guest is a two-time Olympian and a world championship silver medalist. Today, we will hear the story of how a proud mother in the Pacific Northwest and some ice cream could light the fire that turns a small-town girl into a globe-trotting athlete that was able to pursue her childhood dreams at the highest level. She now lives in San Jose, California, where she helps coach the judo program at her alma mater, San Jose State University. In her spare time, she conducts seminars where she's able to share her contagious passion for judo with thousands of judoka around the country every year. Like many of the successful athletes in American Judo, her education never took a back seat, as she pursued her undergrad degree prior to the 2012 Games in Beijing, and then received her master's degree while training for the 2016 Games in Rio. Please welcome one of the most successful athletes in American Judo history, 2012 Olympic bronze medalist, Marty Malloy. All right, I got Marty Malloy here with uh, JudoCast. Marty, thank you very much for coming out tonight. I appreciate you being here. I know I've been trying to get together with you um, all summer, and I know you're crazy busy, and COVID's got us all running in circles. You but... said all summer because that's how long it takes for me to respond. <laughs> hey, you're here, and that's all that matters. So anyway, I really do appreciate you coming sure, out yeah. here and, and doing this, and I think uh, I'm not the only one that has wanted you to come over here on the JudoCast. I've only been doing this for... A couple of months, and I've already I've already had many Marty Malloy requests. So really, it's not only me. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I'm happy to be here. Well, it's good to have you. Um, we're going to walk through your story from the beginning. For I know most of our listeners know your story, but I think for for the few that don't, you know, I, I like a lot of my kids in my dojo to listen to these podcasts, and and I think the the great thing having you as a friend for me is special because I can show people in my world that. Normal people exist, people in our world that we know that made judo, you know, made it to the highest level of judo. And you're right here and within our small community of judo. So, you know, the impact that you've made on local judo here in San Jose and for, you know, the kids at my dojo that can look up to you and see that, you know, your success is a possibility. It's it's really cool to have you. So that's so nice. Thank you. For sure. So I want to uh, start in the very beginning. Um, Marty Malloy, the judo player started. How old were you when you started judo? I was six years old. Six years old. And so I asked you this one time. You came to the <laughs> dojo. This is probably pretty early when I when I first started teaching. You know, David and I were teaching over at the uh, the old CrossFit gym we were part of. And oh, yeah. uh, you came back in the into racquetball the, courts. Yeah, it was. Uh, we we took a wall out. We had like a double racquetball court, which is pretty common for a lot of martial arts schools. You know, this racquetball was big in the seventies and eighties, and then it disappeared. So, oh my gosh, you know what you also had that would be so perfect at this very moment? You had that little viewing window for parents, so they weren't actually in the dojo; they were just looking through that window. That you know, in reality, that was like a closet. It was a very big a closet, closet, a long yeah. closet, the length of the the gym. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, I took over that closet. I cut windows out so the parents were kind of looking down Look like on a, this ledge. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. kind of nice because they got a good view and they're kind of separated. It was it was actually a pretty good design. I think a lot of judo people have, or at least I also remember us having our dojo in a racquetball court. 
I, at one point, my mine was. In, I, I grew up in a community center so judo so program. There and then at your own club, and then at my when on my first dojo, we were in a racquetball court, and we actually moved around racquetball courts sometimes. Right, Isn't that so funny. So for me, I was on a basketball court, and I think at some point, whoever was running the gym thought we need basketball players out here. So let's kind of put the judo guys into the racquetball court that Just nobody uses anymore with the mats and. Right. Anyway. For yeah. sure. So I, I remember you coming to my dojo and, you know, we were super lucky. You came from 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 the Olympics. And and I think I was one of the first stops that you made when you came back with your medal. And that was like <laughs> super special. And I remember the parents, you know, thinking about that window uh, when you brought the medal out. The parents were just as, as excited as the kids. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of a, a cool memory. But I remember asking you um if judo was always something that you were successful with, if, if, if it was a tough beginning for you. And, and I think it wasn't that way. I think you had, uh, the judo genes from the beginning. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You asked me, and to be honest, that was like one of the first clubs that I had visited post Olympics. And I was still adjusting to people being so excited about it. And David and I, my husband, we were just talking about this yesterday about like, you don't realize how, like, the people, how excited people get about you being an Olympian. Like, you always want it for yourself, but then when it becomes you, you don't realize it. it people get so excited about it. And, you know, it's a great experience to have, but I had never been to a club where I was, like, talking about my matches, talking about myself, showing off my medal. Everyone wanted to take a picture with you, um, in a way, I guess, because I ended up doing that, starting to do that, like, as a career after I retired. Sure. It was actually in a good way you get that practice in a safe place because I was kind of unsure of what to say or like yeah. w- how to answer questions or make sure you give everybody time and attention because they're they're so excited to meet you. It's a weird dynamic that you, pro- you I had never had before then. So it was nice to have that at your club. That's I just want to say that. But I remember I said, I oh, what did I say? I always won. I, I think like I asked that. you something along the lines of, you know, was it difficult in the beginning? Did you lose a lot of matches? And you were like, no, uh, no, no. I never really lost a match my whole childhood. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's going to be tough to encourage the younger kids with that. But the thing that I followed up with, which was the important lesson, was that then when I was an adolescent between like 10 to 14 years old, I started losing. And if you haven't practiced losing yet after a six-year winning streak, you know, you you don't know how to lose. You don't know how to get over losses, and you're a little crybaby. And then you have to like grapple with the idea of like, wait, I'm not the best. Like, wait a minute, I'm really, I'm. You're not the best. There are people all around who are better than you. Right. I think overcoming adversity is the the big thing that sport in general teaches us. And judo. I mean, I, as a child, I guess it's possible to have really long undefeated, you know, times. But streaks. Yeah. Yeah. You have streaks. But as an adult, you know, those streaks are very, very rare at the highest level because judo is yeah. just so competitive. So every judo player learns humbleness. I mean, humbleness is something that our sport teaches us. And I think Jimmy Pedro had a similar story to you that he didn't lose much as a kid. And I think there was a story where you know, his dad was, you know, making him fight up age groups and stuff. And he, he didn't take his losses very good. Cause I think he had a super long, you know, winning streak. So I love that about big Jim. like, Oh, well, so we're just going to double down, <laughs> right? You know, you're just going to, we're just going to up the ante and make it harder for you so that you you're going to excel and raise your level. Right. That's what it does. And for the kids that like, when you hear, Oh, well, I won a lot as a kid and I, but I had to learn the losing lesson later. It, it's what I'm really saying to the kids is if you're losing early, that's really good. That's that's what I'm trying to get across is like 
Because when you get to be a 12-year-old, then you're going to have a winning streak that is more impactful if you have bigger goals, which are like the Olympics or national team, whatever that thing is, you know? Right. No, I think in, in our club, I think we take the the road of not really making the tournaments very important. You know, we treat them, they're like practice, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I never get super excited when a kid wins a gold medal at a local tournament and, and I don't show much you know, excitement for the, you know, the kids that do bad, we always find the mm-hmm. lessons in those because what happens, especially at local tournaments, the, the medal, which is the most important for the little kids often doesn't tell the story of the day. You know, some right. kids might be in a very easy division because, you know, developmentally they just got stuck in a place where they were the biggest kid that day. And then you'll have a kid mm-hmm. that maybe mm-hmm. wins four fights and loses one or two and still only gets a bronze medal when they really had an amazing day, but their medal doesn't show the actual result. Right. And but there you are just you're just trying to get the point across to them that like you just needed to be here doing this today. Like the outcome doesn't matter. It's that you're here like win or lose, you know, and as a kid, I, it breaks my heart when I go to tournaments and you see coaches or parents who are just going after their kid for losing and the kid is literally eight or nine years old they're standing there crying and ashamed and like it's so counterproductive it it, it's just like you need to like let them like judo and you're not they're not gonna in order to be good at it you have to like it right everyone knows the mike tyson saying the most dangerous fighter is a happy fighter you know because that joy just emanates through all your everything you're training everything you're doing right so for the kid if they, there's no way they're going to like the sport if you make it that if that's the situation that arises out of them competing right so it's like so i it just breaks my heart cuz the parents obviously want it very badly for the child like I'm not defending them but i understand why a lot of time that happens but if only they could realize that it's like, and I'm not a parent, so I just you know, have to do that disclaimer, you know, but like I I travel a lot. I go to a lot of uh, tournaments. I go to a lot of local clubs when they're having their local tournaments in many states. So I'm not just speaking like opinion. I see it. So for sure, you know, I, uh, yeah, that's the thing. Like get them to go to the tournament and like it first. So as a, as a child, you had a lot of success in your early days of competing, but was it always enjoyable? Did you really love judo, you know, when you were a kid? So I have to be completely honest. I lived on an island, you know, it, it, there's hundreds of thousands of people there, but like it, you, it, there wasn't always a lot of reason to leave. You know, we, I, I did judo there. I went to school there. My friends and family were there. My dad was in the Navy. He worked there. Like it's expensive to put for, or, you know, <laughs> he was driving 64 Cadillacs. Right. And so it's expensive to gas that st- thing up and drive out of town and then go to the mall. So, you know, I would have never really gotten out of the island, I don't think, if judo hadn't taken me there. So my first tournament was in Seattle, uh, Seattle Dojo, and it was a two-hour drive. We drove two hours. And then at the end, all I had to do was walk out and grab the girls and throw them. And at the end, my mom was so happy. She was like, congratulations. And I never had that from my mom as a six-year-old. Like, I was just a kid, right? But here she was. I could see she was very proud of me. And then the whole club went to McDonald's after that. And I got a happy meal and I got an ice cream, you know, the and social then, side of it's important. Oh, my gosh. And then on Sundays, we we had judo on Sundays from two to four in the afternoon. And on Sundays, the ice cream cones at McDonald's were 10 cents each. And so my mom would tell me and my brothers, my what three is it brothers, in the 60s or 70s or 92, <laughs> whatever. They were 10 cents on Sundays. And if we behaved at judo, which meant Zane, my little brother, didn't get kicked off the mat. If I didn't yell at him or like 
talk too much because I was just chatty Kathy the whole time. If we all behaved, she would get two for each of us. So we would be riding like eight cones deep in the back of the caddy on the way home. Like that was judo for me. So were all of your siblings doing judo the whole time? Yeah, up until, I mean, my oldest brother Ruben was 18 when he... But he got a black belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all of them. Yeah, all of us. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So you you actually have a lot of history in, in the Northwest Yudongshikai. So you're from you're from Whidbey Island. I didn't I don't think you mentioned that yet, but Whidbey Island, I, you know, for me, I always thought hey, that's pretty much Seattle, but it really is <laughs> quite a journey to get around the islands and, you know, go across. What's the name of that famous bridge that you've got Deception to go over? Deception Pass. Deception Pass. There's a few so. movies. Yeah, so spot it sometimes. really cool island that you're from. But and then you said your first tournament, the Seattle Dojo, which I think was like the first dojo in the United States. Oh yeah, that's true. And I actually went to that the actual dojo. So it was hosted by Seattle Dojo. But I went to the real place where Jigs first came. Jigs first came <laughs> um, when he visited the area. I don't remember the year. Fantastic, so much history there. Um, and that was. It's kind of crazy. I'm really glad that I got to do that this year before Stay at Home went into place because it was kind of like a really good accumulation of like, I was actually just starting to do a whole tour of seminars for the summer and I had to cancel a few that I didn't even get to announce them before we canceled them, you know? Right. Um, and that was kind of my last stop before we all got stuck at home. So it was great. Everyone, it's There's nothing like returning to home and feeling the the love from the local area. You know, I'll always be a Washington Girl. <laughs> sure. I'm not going to skip the story too much, but you guys have a, like I said, you guys have a, like a rich judo history in your area and you've had a lot of very supportive people that, you know, were there watching you and, and Travis both with all yeah. of your success that you guys both came out of the Northwest and, and even the people whose clubs you weren't from, like you would never know when you meet somebody from the Northwest, you know, they don't claim you like trying to do something. They love you guys. You know, they really feel like you guys are really one big club up there. And it's pretty cool to see. Well, it happens that way when you have a community rally behind players that they see can do well. And I got to give a shout out to Northwest Yudanshkai because as I was building up to the Olympics and post Olympics, they were always sending me money, not like a ton, but they were always finding ways to like give me a scholarship or award me some funds that would be really, really helpful. You know, I was a full-time college student as well. Um, and they did that for Travis as well. So when you have all that community behind you for so many years, it's kind of like we all win. It's like, for sure. I'm sure they all feel like they had a, a part of that because they did. Like, But that's what the money's for in those kind of organizations. It takes I mean, a village. It takes a village, right? Yeah. But you had that village, you know, so you left home. At, at what age did you actually leave home to pursue your judo career at a higher level? When I was about 15, I moved actually here to the Bay Area to train at East Bay Judo Institute. And my really good friend Jessica's family actually agreed to like adopt me. Shout out to the Shea family. Um, at first, I was going every weekend. I would fly there on a Friday from Seattle, uh, train Saturday morning at EBJI. And then there would almost always be a tournament on Sunday. Or is it vice versa? It's reverse here from Washington to California. Our the tournaments are usually Sundays. Sundays, ours are on Saturday. So, and then I would fly back like Monday morning and like go to school for the week. And I was doing that like a couple times a month. Um, and then eventually it, I just, you can't. I spent a whole summer training there. Um, and then I started doing online school. So I was there for, until my junior year. So freshman to junior year-ish of high so school. So you finished high school in Washington. My senior year, I went back. My senior okay. year of high school, um, I, I did in person, actually, back on Whidbey Island. <laughs> How was that going back to Whidbey Island with, I mean, it's a small town, so you knew a lot of people, even though you were gone for a couple of years. Was that a difficult transition to make back to school? 
Yeah. And then I immediately applied to a local community college thinking like I wasn't really going to focus on judo as much. And then <laughs> I'll never forget, I called Travis and I was like, you know what? I want to do judo more. Like I, I don't get enough training at my club here because it had dwindled down over the years. There was less people there and none to challenge me. You do need to have people around you who are going to push you, you know, and I had learned that at East Bay Judo with Sayaka Matsumoto, who just whooped my butt every day. Like she helped me grow as a player so much at that time. Um, and then I called Travis and he was, I was like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't have one training with He was like, come up here. To, Tra to Travis come. is still at Tacoma. At yeah. This point. He was still at Yipon Dojo with Jason and Byron. And he said, just come up here to Tacoma. He, that was where he was living with his grandparents. And he's like, we have an extra room. You can just go to judo with me every night. He was working as a roofer. So he would get up at like 5 a.m. every morning and go to work all day till like 5 and then come home and pick me up. And then we would go to the mall and get like pizza and Mountain Dew for right. lunch like every day and go straight to judo. The and, champion's diet. Yeah, totally. And me and him <laughs> were just kind of like, we were definitely like dreamers then. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to like get to the Olympics? Like, what should we do? We were just coming up with these naive plans. And I did, we did that for a few months. Um, I would sleep all day till like two or three in the afternoon and then go do our pizza and judo thing and then just like watch TV all night. It was a terrible lifestyle. It was really. But you guys are 18 years old, right? <laughs> yeah. We were, we were both just finished high school. So, um, and then we came up with this idea to do, we called it the tripod, which I can't even believe that now that I say it, which was we'll go to San Jose and try it out. Then we'll go to Colorado Springs and try out the OTC program. And then we were going to head up to the East Coast up near Jason Morris. Um, and we had a good relationship with San Jose, right? Like, right. like people from the Pacific Northwest have been migrating down to go to school and do judo for so long. So it's always right. been like a funnel system. Yep. And of course, Dave Williams had accosted me at a Junior Olympics in the hallway after I had won. I had won the Junior Olympics 13 or 14. And he was like, you got, or 50. I had to be older than that. Before I went to East Bay. Uh, maybe 14 or something. And he was like, what are you thinking about for college? And I was like, what? And he's like, I've seen you, you know, you know, San Jose State has a program. And I was like, what is this crazy guy talking about? Like, I didn't even like think about it. And then <laughs> when me and Travis were making that decision, we we're like, San Jose will be our first stop. And then I came um, in October. And I'll remember that because I went to a Halloween party. I dressed as a ballerina. And my now husband at that party had spilled cake on my white sweater. And I turned to him. Uh, and he was dressed as a Chippendale. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, like, hello. And he just like looked at it and walked away. And I never forget that. I always tell him that story. I was like, you were so rude to me the first time we met. And now we're married. Anyway, <laughs> then I trained that whole time. It was fantastic. At that time, there was like 10 to 15 girls, all 57, 63 kilos. Right. Um, I mean, the mat was just packed. And Mr. Uchida just pulled me aside. You know how he does it. Oh. What's your GPA? What are your grades like? And I was like, well, I did online school. So in order to pass, you have to do really well. So I had a good GPA. Um, and he's like, you should apply to school. But that was in the fall, which you can't, I don't think you can do this anymore or is apply in the fall and attend in the spring. You used to be able to do that for sure. You used to be. Yeah. You no, know, for me, because I applied and I was like, this isn't going to work. And then I got an acceptance letter and I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to college. And then Travis got in too. And so we drove down and... For me, it's been 15 years now. Right. So you guys never made the trip to Colorado or to your East Coast trip to Jason's? Well, it's funny because Travis eventually moved on. And I kind of, after a while, I kind of started sensing that he was getting itchy, that he yeah. needed, he wanted something else. Maybe this just wasn't for him, which is perfectly fine, right? Like you have to do what you feel is right for yourself. Right. And I understood that. And then 
I thought he was going to go to Colorado and possibly try it out. But then he ended up at, oh, my God, I'm going to mess up this order and he's going to yell at me. Jason's and then Jimmy's later on. Right. So right. he ended up moving on and going to one other leg of the tribe. But he stayed in San Jose for two or three years. I right. I want to say at least. I don't remember. Yeah. So I, I was coaching the team back then. And I remember when you guys got there, Travis was, he was gung-ho. I mean, we knew he was going to be good. He was already training super hard. Mm-hmm. Um, my one story with uh, Travis that I always remember that kind of made me realize it still sticks in my head today. So w- this was, what is it? My years are messed up. Maybe 2003. Is that what we're talking about? I graduated high school in 2004. Came to school here so in 2000. Yeah. So 2004, 2005, uh, Florian Weiner from Germany. I remember. 81 kilo world champion. He was living in the Bay Area and he was just doing judo for fun. He was retired. He's a little bit, you know, not in shape. Travis is like unknown. Nobody knows who he is. Florian doesn't know this guy. He's never really been on the international circuit even yet. Actually, Travis was still cutting for 73s then. He was so small. But he was tall and lanky and he fought hard. And he, yeah, yeah. So I'm coaching Travis and I'm watching him fight against Florian. And Florian's kind of getting, he's losing his cool. Like he's frustrated because Travis is good. You know, he's like, who is this guy? I can't really throw him. So he's kind of like, he's, he's putting his hand, like he's throwing his grip over the back, kind of punching him in on the, in the face on purpose. Right. I mean, it wasn't like one every once in a while. It was almost like four punches in a row that were like punches with the arm, you know, like boom, boom, boom. He throws his arm over. I'm like, I said, Travis, I said, you can't take that crap. I said, why, why don't you duck? He said, if I duck, he was eating them. (laughs) He said, if I duck, he uppercuts me. Oh my gosh. I was like, wow. I said, well, you, you know, he, you know, you, you don't have to tell Travis to fight harder. That, that was not the situation. I was just a little frustrated with the way the fight was going and, yeah. and he literally was hitting him. But Travis came after him every single day. I think at this time, Florian's just popping in on Friday nights to have a few drinks after practice and have a good time. But Travis was just chasing him. And we all knew like this guy's, he's got what it takes. I remember Marius Popescu, he said, that kid's going to be an Olympic champion one day. And this is before he had <laughs> won the nationals, That's right? Crazy. So. You know, well, some people saw this. Think about his match with Ole. It was the same thing. Just, just punch. You know, it was dirty. It's the right. same thing. He's like, ah, I've been getting this since I was eighteen. Yeah, and, and he really <laughs> has, right? <laughs> Pretty amazing. So, so for your judo career, I, I looked you up. I mean, I've been following you forever, and 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 I get it all. But I, when I look at your um, your profile, like on Judo Inside, you have like a your your trajectory of your success and your wins are are pretty like pretty perfect. I mean, you kind of stepped into you know, you won early. I think your one of your first international events was a small thing. You were young, like the rendezvous, which the I think rendezvous. you might have been fifteen or sixteen years old. But 16, you beat yeah. you beat Ellen, who was the Olympian at that time. Ellen Wilson, yeah. Ellen Wilson, that. you beat I think in the final, and everyone's like, "Who's this girl?" You know. <laughs> so that was your first thing, and then you come to San Jose a couple of years later, and you start making these trips to Europe, and this is kind of the stepping stones. You're going to Europe, and you're going to what we used to call like. B-level tournaments. I remember you going yeah. to the tournament in mm-hmm. Belgium, like in Arlon, where you would go there and you had to fight out of your pool. So you'd get like eight matches in one tournament. I went kind to of. that tournament when I was like 16 and I lost on my first rounds. And then like nine years later, I won it. And I won nine matches that right. day. And I remember, like I've I talked about a lot about people. What's your most happiest moment? What are you most proud of? But for me, that was totally full circle. Like, don't tell me that I can't start at the bottom and <laughs> right. And those those B tournaments in Europe are not easy because they're, they're usually not. they're usually really big. You know, you have like the number two, three, four, and five guys and girls from 
all the countries that are all trying to break through, you know, the rosters in their own country. So they're all trying to prove a point, trying to make national teams. And those things are stacked. So Italy and France and Cuba will send their number twos and their number twos are just as good as their number one. And you'll have like a high school <laughs> champion from Japan and yeah. like a Korean yes. college kid or something, right? Yeah. I had some close matches. The day I won it, I had two matches that were so close that I don't even want to tell the story. <laughs> so you started winning those tournaments. I, I look at your record. You start meddling at a few of those and you start winning. Is there a, a memory where you kind of step through and kind of, do you have a breakthrough moment where you realize that, you, you know, you knew you were getting better. You were starting to beat a lot of good players, but... Do you remember the time when you feel like because you won a certain match, you had that breakthrough event where you said to yourself, like, I can beat anybody in the world? Anyone in the world? Anyone. That moment? Um, no, yeah, I want to know when when you started to feel that way because the confidence that you had later in your career obviously doesn't come, you know, you didn't have it when you were 16. And when you were 16, you knew you were good, but I don't think you had the confidence to win at the world level yet. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, something that's a hard question to narrow down because I'm trying to think of like along that trajectory. But there was one moment that, uh, you know, so many people would be like, you should be ha- you should be happy. Like when I made the final of the Worlds in 2013. So when I when I won in London, I didn't think what you just asked. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yet. I didn't think like I can beat anyone. You don't, trust me. You don't have to think that to get an Olympic medal. It comes down to much more than just thinking that, you know? Sure. So that day I like, I just did everything right and grinded and had a game plan and stuck with it. Right. Um, but I didn't have that confidence you're talking about yet. Maybe after I did a little. So it's, it's the Olympic medal. It's that, it's the Maybe. day because in, in t- London, but then the next year at the worlds in 2013, I made it to the final, which is like, I can't believe that because I came close so many times over the years. I did like a ninth, a seventh, a fifth, a fifth. And then it was like just working my way up to the middle round. And then um, I made it to the final with Mike Swain, world champion, first world champion in my chair in Brazil. Um, And I lost really badly. Like just I was so nervous. I was so I could. It was kind of like it was like you're asleep all day. And then I woke up in the final. Does that make sense? I, like, I'm sure you've been Pan Am champ. You know, you have a day where you just kind of everything's going right. Maybe it's the right. flow state. I don't know what you call it, but like, you're in the zone and you're fighting the best. You're fighting the way you hope you'll always fight. Right. <laughs> right? And then it was almost like suddenly I was in the final and I was like, what? Like, this is like dream coming true right now because, you know, everyone talks about the Olympics. It's the biggest deal to everybody. But everyone in judo knows that the worlds are harder. Right. right. Bigger pool. Like I said, number one and two from each country can be there. So you're not facing 30 people from 30 different countries. You're facing 60, two from each possibly. Right. Right. It's a bad breakdown. But so I went to the final and then I woke up in the final. I did terribly. I just kind of did this little hip check thing in and she just swept me. It was kind of a, it was a gracious epon, I thought, but she definitely caught me and I was embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. You should be really happy, but I was so embarrassed. And I think after that, I got pissed off. And it's kind of similar to right before I fought um, the Portuguese girl, Tumba, at London, because I had lost to her six or seven times before I had to fight her at the tournament of my life. Right. And I got really pissed then, too. So not pissed, like blinding fury, but like it's like you feel like this. Telma was <laughs> a hard match for us as fans to watch. <laughs> And to watch you fight because she, you know, she is an expert. Don't get me wrong. I mean, she's frustrating, especially 
for us watching you and watching and, and she seems to find a way to get ahead on the Shido right away. And she just she's she was like better than most at protecting a small lead. She's a strategist. Yeah. And I definitely felt for her when they changed the leg grab rule because I had been a, a fan of her when she was a fifty two kilo player. And her big thing was a running leg grab. Mm-hmm. She was super explosive and fast. Like I was like, whoa, I'm glad she's 52. <laughs> right. And then they changed the rule. You can't grab the leg anymore. And then she moved up and she was killing it there. And it's just kind of like to have, I, it sucks to readjust your entire style of doing judo because a rule changed when they did the two on one rule change for me, that was huge because I'm known for being really strong. And I feel like my grips have developed a lot over the years. So when you couldn't use two hands to break the gi off anymore, I couldn't really get the grip off as much. So it forced me to change my entire way of doing judo. It's kind of as much as some of these rule changes frustrate the judo players of, of all the different eras. It, it is kind of fun to sit back and watch the ones that are able to adjust and kind of change their game and really. Totally. And I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into it, but I think from an outside perspective looking in now that we're at the best point with the rules. That's that's a tough one. That's just, I know it's I know it's a hot topic. I know some people would disagree vehemently, but I really enjoy watching how judo flows now. Like I really like how the matches have a lot of big throws, and I watched a few old videos recently of before the rule change, and some of those matches are disgusting. You know, I, I had this this conversation. That a lot sounded with, so like those matches are disgusting, but like it's just really hard to watch. When it's Agreed. all leg grabs. Agreed. So that was a, in reality, that was not a super long period of time that that was. It was probably like, I would say the peak of that is 2008, just before the rules changed. But up until 2008, the leg grabs were getting a little bit, um, it was getting a little crazy, you know? And I, and I always say that the the leg dra- the la- the droppers kind of ruined it for the lifters. You know, the people that like the lift mm-hmm. were punished because of the people who drop. You know, it's those leg drops. It's those, is it the kataguruma that gets stuffed and you end up taking bag shots yeah, and double yeah. legs. So all the people that do the big tegarumas were like, hey, come on, those throws were beautiful. And it is easy. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, some of them are beautiful. You're right. But I think the the IJF, they have the stats. There's more matches being won by Ipone. Mm-hmm. And and I think you're right. And, and you know, if you take a, a, even go back a little bit further in history, you'll see that the way judo matches were done, you know, they say something like, well, in the old days, there was only Ipone. Well, the reason they added a lot of that stuff is because it was so boring watching two people like, you know, standing upright, just walking around the mat. It's, They're just You end up in a stalemate. For sure. That's what people don't realize. And there aren't a lot of videos from back then like there are now to watch all that go down. But right. when you're both going to fight that way, every single risk you take could be the risk that you lose from. And so then neither of them is going to take the risk, right? Yeah. From a from a sport standpoint, you have to put rules in place because people are going to constantly adjust their games to take advantage and and just get the smallest edge, you know, using those rules. So, you know, when you push, you know, people that talking to a lot of other martial artists outside of judo, you know, wrestlers when I was growing up or or even now a lot of jujitsu, people say, well, why don't you just do this? You know, not not to say they know how to do it, but they would, from an outsider's perspective, you say something like, oh, it looks like this would be pretty easy to do. Like, the one thing that people from a fan's perspective or even from a jiu-jitsu perspective that they don't realize is the amount of energy judo requires. Totally. And the wrestling, amount of energy wrestling. wrestling. But but because you're not allowed to stall, you're not allowed to stall, you have to attack. So in judo, like after 20 to 30 seconds, you have to come up with something. Mm-hmm. And it has to be something that's like low risk if you don't have something. So when you're forced to make a move, that's when the mistakes happen, but that's also when the openings for the other players happen. And that's 
I think why we're seeing these bigger epones. And I also feel like we have a different appreciation for epones now. Like when previously, I don't know, I don't know. The ones we're seeing now are beautiful, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like the Abe's. Oh no, I guess I'm naming only Japanese fighters, but those are some of my favorites. There's a like, lot of them and the IGF some nasty does throws now. Like they do such a good job of putting the highlights out. I mean, you can you can you know, the clickbait out there on the internet for for judo is amazing these days. Even if you're not studying it, just to watch judo from entertainment, there's just so much going on. You have it's no cool. excuse not to study your opponents now. Right. <laughs> In life, we're always trying to surround ourselves with positive influences and positive people. For Marty, she was able to find that inspiration in her longtime teammate and good friend, Kayla Harrison. They say you end up to be the average of the five people you hang out with the most. When your coaches are world champions and your best friend is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, I would say things are looking pretty good. In the next segment, Marty will talk about the motivational energy that Kayla brings to everyone she's around. Side by side, through good times and bad, judo brought them together and fostered what will more than likely be a lifelong bond. We will discuss the importance for athletes to plan for the future so they can handle the transition to life after sport. We will talk about COVID-19 and how the uncertainty is affecting our daily lives, as well as the Olympics and judo as a whole. We will hear Marty's story of how she transitioned from an athlete to an advertising and marketing professional within a Silicon Valley startup. So for your whole judo career, you talk a lot about your good friend, Kayla Harrison, who has uh, moved on into the MMA world and she's done very well for herself. But but on, on a on a bigger thing for you, I think the, the big thing for you is having her with you side by side because your guys' careers, you guys had success at like the same, you know, pretty much the same time. You guys were together probably most of your careers, if not your whole careers of all your successful days. And and I know you're you're really good friends, if not best friends, but... Watching her with all of her success, I think, had to push you to the next level as well. You guys are out there winning tournaments together and kind of going through this whole process together. And it seems like you guys had a great time doing it. Totally. And I think, like, one thing about Kayla is that she, like, that, um, that, like, powerful, like, you can do this, like, motivational, inspiring, always nose to the grindstone workhorse that she presents she's like that like in real life like she's like everything she's like let's do it like hard on like you can do this like she's she's she brings that kind of like support to her relationships too which is why I think she's so fun to be around um but I guess also you always want to like come home with both medals right and I was like I'm always gonna get the medal on the first day and then you'll get the medal on the third day because she'd fight the third day but like how can you I, I always say, like, how can you plan to have had that happen? Like, we met in 2009 at the Worlds in Rotterdam. And I that was the first time I was like, wow, like, we are very similar. We get along. We really, like, have a good time. And then this many years later, like, who would have thought? The, the fact that we both got the Olympic medals in London was crazy. That has got to be a lot of fun. And going through a journey with somebody that's, you know, so close. Because a lot of times, you know, I think that you know, I heard one of your other conversations that you had on a podcast a few years ago, and you were talking about, you know, how it's lonely at the top. And that's a, a very common theme that a lot of people talk about is like when you're when you're going through, you know, hard training, you know, most people aren't willing to do that. And then, you know, when you're really good, and you're the best in the country, there's, there's only room for one at the top. And, and, and to have somebody that even though you guys weren't living in the same city, most of your travels were together and you did a lot of training camps together, but 
having that person side by side has got to be big for motivation and totally. discomfort. And especially not even just for the good parts, like misery loves company kind of thing. Like we were miserable together a lot of times. And I think that's kind of what builds those strong bonds more than anything. Judo people who have cut weight together, trained together, lived together. Anyone who's done that knows what I'm talking about. You kind of right. build that that like primal bond because you feel like you've come close to death. How many how many <laughs> judo stories go like, hey, remember when we were sitting in the sauna that one time, scraping the credit card on the ceiling? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like in judo, and I'm sure it's in any sport that you do to a high level and travel the world and get put in just circumstances that no one would ever could even conceive that you build those bonds, you know, and she was a person I built that with for sure. And um, it's crazy that she's doing MMA now because there was a time when I was like, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. Like she was indecisive for a long time, you know, but she's going to kill it, whatever she does. She's just she's that person like she was bound to go into MMA or some other sport. I don't know. Racquetball. Right. I'm just making stuff up now. But like she needs to channel that into something. You know, she's too young to not be doing, to not channel it and take over the world. <laughs> I think athletes of all kinds, this is a huge topic with, you know, athletes that have trouble making the transition, you know, from high level athletics, you know, whether it's from pro sports or even for most of those of us in the judo world, it's like an amateur thing, but still making that transition from your world being everything about judo and constantly mm -hmm. thinking about the next tournament to move on, you know, into the real world. And I think a lot of pro athletes in our day, you look at like the number of NFL football players who make millions of dollars and they go broke because they're just looking for that, you know, way to channel their energy. And, you know, they, they, they lose that drive for sport and it's hard to replicate that in the real world when you're done competing. Totally. I don't think there is a real replacement. I haven't found it yet. If you know, hit me up DMS. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, it, yeah, it's, it's tough. And uh, the one thing I will say, like with the whole stay at home situation right now and athletes not being able to train and or even compete to qualify is like, I think this is a really good time to start thinking that way before you have to, because I'm not saying like that to like scare anyone who's like, but like you have no choice right now. So like, think about what you're going to do next, like have a plan, like make steps because you're getting a taste right now this kind of helplessness of like what's next like that's kind of how it feels when you retire right <laughs> and so it's like right now it's it's totally against your will so like start thinking that way because it's going to start up again and then you're going to come to this point again not much later you know so yeah it, <laughs> it it's hard but like so Looking back to your career, you made a lot of the right decisions. You know, for a lot of people that don't know your your path is that you actually went to school. And that's, it's not always easy to do, especially, you know, for a, a lower level athlete that's just fighting at the nationals and stuff. Of course, it's super easy to go to school, but you were on the national team. You're training and traveling a lot. And mm -hmm. you were able to, you know, get your undergrad degree before the 2012 Olympics. Yep. And after the 2012 Olympics, I don't, you know, I'm not sure what was going through your mind, but maybe you can walk us through that. But you decided, hey, I, I have four more years to do this and I'm not going to waste it doing just judo, but the importance of setting things up. And for you, you went, you went to grad school, right? Yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, like it doesn't have to be school. I like trade schools are, some people are not college people. Some people are meant to like be an entrepreneur or 
I don't know. Maybe they like to do hard labor. Maybe they like construction. Who knows? Like do a trade. Start thinking about what you want to do with the rest of your life. I just want to be clear about that because I understand the college route isn't for everyone right. or even an option all the time. Even though heads up, if you make an Olympic team, the USOC will give you a full scholarship like they did to me. So just something to think for about. For grad school you're talking about. For grad school. And so to your question, I you know graduating in 2010 – and then having two years to do nothing but traverse the globe and qualify was a blessing. Like you do kind of need that freedom for that critical period. Um, and so I, I'm really glad that I timed it that way. And then when you're looking at another four years, it's kind of like you can you should only train so much every day. I mean, there right. are people who go to extremes, but like generally there's a point when you stop doing good for your body sure. when you overtrain. Period. It's it's just science. <laughs> and then, so like, what are you going to do with those other ten hours in your day? Like, be, you got to be an adult. You got to be constructive. And why wouldn't I go? I'm not saying it like it's a no dub, but like for me, the next logical thing was like continue your education so that you're you're as prepared as you can be when whatever happens. You know? With education, you're never going to wish you didn't do it. So for you, you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. So the education path makes perfect sense. Right, and if right. you can, you know, if you're, yeah, you know, I don't. I'd love to be an entrepreneur, but I don't know what business I'm going to start. What should I do now? You know, whether you're trying to find it. So I think that's really good advice. And, and looking at all the athletes, you know, and it's pro baseball players, it's, it's uh, college athletes of all kinds where a very, very small percentage of people leave high school and do college sports. And then even a smaller percentage go on to be what are considered professional athletes to yeah. earn money. So how do you, you know, when you call it quits and it's time, it's, you hate to call it quits on your sport and then the next day go, hmm, what should I do? <laughs> what should I do? And like the logical thing is to like, well, you're, you're a professional in that sport, right? So you give back to it, which I think is another option that people can think about. I've, I've found, I feel so fortunate that I don't even know I need to tally this. I, I've been to, I've been to so many dojos since I went to London, 2012 to now, over that eight years. And over the years, you start to build friendships and relationships with the clubs you go to because to really give them anything to help them, you have to invest in like what they're doing and like try to help. And then also be available to inspire the kids and talk motivationally and talk about your Olympic experience and explain to them why it's possible for all of them, right? So I feel incredibly fortunate that like people are willing to not only pay to do that, because they value what what you're going to tell them and teach them your lifetime of work, but that you get to build those friendships along the way as well. And I think that being educated just helps with that, right? Like For sure. You, you go to talk to their kids. You say, hey, like I went to the Olympics and I got an education. Like it's not impossible. Like you don't have to concentrate on just your sport because you're, you're so much more than that. To me, judo players have something special. Just to do judo, period, there's something about you, you know, and maybe it can transfer to wrestling and other similar sports or even you could say high-level sports at all. But judo, it's a special little beast. And so I think that judo people are capable of a lot more than the average person just from falling down hundreds of times and having to get back up. <laughs> right. I I totally agree. Um so when you um, when you finished your Olympic journey in 2016, you you continued on, and you won a few tournaments. So in 2016, you didn't have the day that you wanted, and then you went on to I think you won, was it the Grand Prix maybe in Cancun? Yeah, right before. Yeah, I had a great day there, and then your last tournament was at the World Championships of 2017. Yep, mm -hmm. Kazakhstan. Oh my gosh. I'm not sure I remember where. 
So that's when you've been a, a lot of places. Budapest. Budapest. It was Budapest. So, so for you at, at Bud- was there any thought like in 2017 that you might want to stick around till 2020? No. Mm-mm. No. I, you know, I had, I had been on the fence about going another year anyway, but disappointment always makes you go a little, like I can make this right. You know, I can sure. put in the time and get my mind right before the fight. So I'll do better. But I had a herniated disc from 2009 that had gotten better. It didn't really bother me over the years. And then eight weeks before the Worlds in 2017, I, oh my gosh, I was doing a kettlebell swing and it just went like, and it was, t- I don't know if anyone, anyone who's had a back spasm or herniated disc. Have you had that? No. Your back spasms, like it, it literally like, imagine how a cramp, how it shakes and it's like, tensing up but it's worse like it's really bad and it's all around the area of the disc that got popped out and so I had done that in 2009 and then right before the worlds I did a stupid kettlebell swing and the same thing happened I fell to my knees and then on all fours oh no I was training with Ashoka thank god April was there my teammate April from San Jose State because she drove me home but I pushed it out again and so I was in the point of trying to rehab my back and get it better. I I was at the OTC training. We had a world team training camp and they have amazing facilities there. They were trying to do everything they could to help me be ready for the the worlds, you know, shot. I got a shot in my back and all this stuff. And I just, it was not ideal. And so I knew after 2017 that that wasn't going to get easier, that part, you know, and I was actually worried about my back long-term of like, you know, this has come about 10 years later, not eight years later, you know, and you want to walk when you're old. For sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't a hard decision for me. So, I mean, could you imagine if you would have tried to stick it through with the 2020 Olympics being delayed? I'm trying to imagine like some of the athletes that are out there right now, you know, like the older athletes, you know, the ones that were just kind of trying to stick it through to 2020 and now they postpone it and you're like man I was really for sure going to finish in 2020 it's a whole nother year and it seems like a long time I know I know even Colton you know I don't know what his plans are I haven't spoken to him in some time but you know he was you know a few years back he was very clear like you know 2020 is it for me I'm done in 2020 and now it's like and he's one of those athletes where he's at the old you know the you know the top side Did of his he career say that he was gonna be done in 2020 that's what he used that. to say it's been a while I since I've spoken that. to him but that was his you know plan mm. Yeah, and then so now being ready to have finished and then have to wait another year. And, you know, I've seen two sides of it. I've seen people who are kind of like more time to get better, right? right. And they just put that positive spin on it. But I think no matter how positive spin you put on it, there's got to be some feeling of like – because if you can't do anything, you have to be positive because you're only hurting yourself if if you let it get to you. It's going to seep into all your training. It's going to get messed with your mind, right? So either way, you have to try and spin it. But I think deep down, I would be, I would be really upset. Because and, and the uncertainty is the, is the big the thing here, right? The uncertainty, I think, is the part that causes the upsetness. Because, <laughs> I don't know, like your, your body has so many miles in it, right? And just do I train really, really hard nonstop for the next two years as it keeps getting extended, extended? But actually, I thought I heard that... If it doesn't happen next year, it's not going to happen. That I don't know. But I mean, the, the longer this virus goes, the scarier it gets. And I think yeah. that that's probably that's on the back of people's mind that what if this thing gets canceled? And then like for the American athletes, I'm not super for sure on the roster, but I know there's like, you know, there's about four or five people that are in the running and there's mm-hmm. a few that are just shy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, I don't think they've made any formal announcements, but and- I... 
heard there's travel, right? Yeah, there's travel restrictions. Yeah. Um, you know, how many more events? They said they're going to do a few more events, but it seems to be that it's all up in the air right now. And that's got to be hard for everybody that's trying to make this happen. I wonder if the IJF would start the tour if certain countries could not come. That's a question that is happening right now, I think. Like being you know, discussed. The U.S. is, you know, a lot of countries are not letting Americans travel. Yeah. So then you immediately, so then our three contenders no longer have a chance like that those chances get taken from them and then so then by that action that they're not allowing certain countries to finish qualifying technically right these are to my knowledge unanswered questions i haven't heard but you know i also haven't heard anything about igf tournaments starting up either they're being pretty quiet i mean i haven't seen Mm -hmm. any big announcements i know in you know a month or two ago they're talking about we're we're going back at it in october but now you know just the idea of athletes from different countries all getting on planes and flying to one location for the tournament is like because at least with those isn't it with the basketball team they have them in a disney world right yeah they get the (laughs) disney Disney world World bubble right Right, so at least they like they're controlling where they're going and stuff but it's the idea of hundreds of athletes from different countries all going to one tournament is just scary to think about it seems impossible because you have you have to look at all the pro sports in america you know between the nba and major league baseball and uh, American football. like So these guys have the biggest budgets in the world. And so far, they've all been unsuccessful at containing the virus. You know, I think there was a baseball team in Florida. The Marlins, I think, had 14 positive tests last week. Oh my gosh. So, oh my you know, gosh. when it comes down to like amateur athletes, and when you're talking about trying to get athletes from 150 different countries, you know, traveling the world to hit these events... It's not going to happen anytime soon. Even the ones that are well protected, because they're all together, they all just spread it among themselves too. Right. It's crazy. Well, they're sneaking out of their camps and doing things they shouldn't be doing. So, <laughs> well, I guess so. In this scenario, then the travel restriction doesn't mean anything to our athletes at this point, which is good. Yeah, at this point, it doesn't because I think the world is still equally. on lockdown. Mm-hmm. But it seems that certain parts of the world are starting to ease their restrictions, and you know, right now. Unfortunately, we're like in one of the worst positions, you know, when it comes to the worldwide cases. We're not just in the U.S. We're in California. (laughs) Right. Literally, like, yeah, we're like, what are some of the worst places? (laughs) It seems crazy because like, uh, you know, if you look at the stats, you know, California looks really bad. But locally here where we are in Santa Clara County, we're really, you know, we're like the epicenter. One of the earliest cases in the country was right here in Santa Clara County. And we we're the first ones on lockdown and everyone mm-hmm. gives our, mm-hmm. you know, our health advisor, uh, what's her name? Cody. They give her a hard time, but she really, you know, put us on lockdown before everybody else. And we, we never opened up, you know, a lot of the gyms. I mean, it's hard for me, you know, I own a judo school and, you know, on, I have a sign on the door that said, Hey, you know, we're going to be closed for two weeks. And that was March 14th. Is it still up? I don't think it's there anymore. So I saw you doing some drills in a park though. So you guys are doing outside distancing So we're training. doing, yeah, we're doing outside <laughs> training. Still no judo, but we're doing a lot of physical training just awesome. to get the kids. Because, you know, the, the social thing is important, you know, for the kids. They've been sitting around. I mean, it's been five months. That's a long time. You know, for a kid, if you said you have to wait five months to go out and do your activities, and most of the team sports in California are still off. You know, there's nothing happening. So imagine the, if you don't have a yard or anything, how like cooped up the kids feel. And Yeah. So you got to get these kids together. So we're doing, you know, we're, we're just doing physical training at the park. And, you know, I have a, a good group of kids that are coming out and everyone loves it. You know, not that running is super fun for everybody, but getting out and, you know, kicking a ball and running and racing and, and you know, joking with your mm-hmm. friends is is way more important. And I think everyone realizes that after you've been unlocked and even as adults, you know, like you were saying earlier, it's like, you're a social beast, you know, you got to get out and talk to people and 
you know, it's tough sitting in your house. You know, I know you love your love your husband and everything. But... Well, when he comes home from work, I'm like, hey, I have things to say. You're like, hey, what'd you do at work? Like you were never interested before, and now you're like, hey, what happened at work? Anything cool? No, I'm like, hey, did you put that order in? You're right. You're <laughs> like, like, yeah, you know what's going on? It is day to day, is boring day to day stuff that happens at his office is now an interest to you. It's and kind then of he crazy. comes home, and I'm like, the cats are good. <laughs> so you're lucky to get to work from home, I guess, right? So you I mean, I miss my coworkers for sure. Like they're a nice group. But So let's back up a step. So okay. you you finished your judo career and um it seems like you didn't have any trouble jumping right into the, you know, the professional world here in the Silicon Valley. What are you up to these days? Um I mean, okay, I don't know how you define trouble, but I will say that I applied to a lot of places and got a lot of no's. Um and I had heard over the years that, you know, saying you that you went to the Olympics and letting people know about your work ethic will be get your foot in the door, but it won't always get you the job. And I definitely learned that because the nose, everyone was impressed and they were like, I'm pretty sure you probably have great work ethic, but we need someone who with four to five years of experience. So here I was 30, whatever years old, walking into my first entry level job with a master's degree and an Olympic bronze medal and you know, coaching at San Jose State already. And they were like, yeah, but you don't have any experience, which is valid, very valid point, you know. And so I was feeling a little disillusioned for a while. Maybe I shot a little too high with where I applied. I definitely went for the big ones. Like, sorry for background. My background is advertising, digital marketing, networking, digital networking stuff. And I went to like LinkedIn, Facebook, eBay, you know, (laughs) all the big uh, startups in the Bay, Um, which, you know, why not? Right. And then I ended up applying at a company called My Health Teams. And um, I'll never forget during the interview, my our, our COO, Mary, told me, uh, I know you're going to work hard. And I was like, all right. And then they hired me. That's simple, right? Yeah. I mean, we talked about a lot more than that, but um, I really like it there. I've, Like I said, I miss my coworkers. They're really nice people. We, um, The company we make... We make social networks for people living with chronic illnesses, and we support 38 different chronic illnesses. So I work in the social media marketing part of that. Um, 38 different sites means 38 Facebooks and 38 Twitter pages. So I'm sending a lot of social media messages every day, totally engrossed in the marketing world. Wow. So explain that a little bit. So you have a, you have a Facebook page for each ailment or illness. Exactly. And then so. these are places where people are kind of just hanging out to exchange information or? Yeah. I mean, I, in a way, I guess you could think about it as like, if you have heart disease and you have questions about heart disease, it's kind of like a Facebook group, but it's a website separate from Facebook, which means it's private. You know, your friends don't have to know you're part of other groups and people can go there to share advice about like, I need a pacemaker or like, I'm super fatigued or I need to change my medication. Like really? nitty gritty niche things that only other people who are living with that disease have any idea about. Right. Right. So people go to Google, they're looking at random websites, getting advice. But when you come to one of our sites, you're actually like around 50,000 to a hundred thousand people all diagnosed with the same condition as you. So they've been through what you're going through. They can offer like educational support, like, Hey, go here for support or and they can also say, like, I understand that this is hard. So we do that for 38 different diseases and chronic conditions. Um, 
And so my job is to like let people know about that. <laughs> like, right. I'm like on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. I'm like, hey, did you know that like there's this many people who, who are dealing with the exact same struggles you are? Like, go, go connect. Right. Go so, and what, so what's the revenue model? Are they, are they selling advertising? Is that? Yeah, what's yeah, the, we yeah. have we have advertising, and then we also have um, resource centers, which are like information centers that are sponsored by a certain company to bring specific resources. Perhaps if you have epilepsy, it's like this is how to identify this type of seizure, and this is the best treatment for this type of seizure based on this research and like all the information you could possibly want about a specific part of that disease, which is super helpful if you're looking for good information about sure. your health. <laughs> so has COVID um, impacted that business at all? I mean, you guys are, are you guys branching out into like, I'm sure the information that people are looking for is just overwhelming at this point. Do you guys kind yeah. of hone in on any of that? And Well, I mean, a big aspect of the company is the chronic conditions are people with autoimmune conditions like lupus, which a lot of people have been hearing about because of the hydrochloroquine that's been in the news. And, you know, when your your immune system is compromised, then if you get sick, you're in a lot more danger than somebody else. So there's definitely concern among our communities. So one thing that we've done, we've tried to do the best we can is just constantly update them with information and resources from accredited doctors to talk about it. Our, we actually just launched a resource on our multiple sclerosis website from a doctor. And it's literally like, I have MS, like, what can I do to keep safe, safe from COVID? And he just talks on for an hour, like a specialist on that right. disease about how they can keep themselves safe at that time. So that's been something we've been having to rally behind, like during these times and like yeah. make sure we're getting the most up-to-date information and like keeping it relevant so that, you know, your health is at risk. You so can't. you're like going to med school right now, it sounds like. <laughs> Not at all. I am totally <laughs> a marketing person, but you learn a lot about the health conditions that you never would before. Like we we have 38 websites. So I I know a good number about 38 specific diseases so far. And, we, you know, we're always trying to expand. We're going to launch a new one soon. Always exciting things changing. And right. the thing that sucks, though, is that we had moved into a really cool new office right in downtown SF. And then like literally two weeks later, shelter in place went into effect. And that's one thing I love about our company is they were like, stay home, like keep yourself safe. And so I've been at home. And so you're missing that office that probably had like a ping pong table. And <laughs> no, <all. laughs> it's not like that at all. But we did have a very nice lounge area with snacks. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, one of the most undertaught and, you know, probably the most undervalued ability um, for for judo and the lessons that judo players get on the mat is is transferring that knowledge and your work ethic and everything that you learn in judo into the real world. So could you give us any specific things that you feel that all of your years on the mat has helped you accomplish some of your goals outside of the dojo? Oh my gosh, you answer first. It's <laughs> <laughs> a hard question. Um, I guess it's it's maybe just judo as a whole. Like in judo, you kind of have to learn something every day, whether it's just like learn how to get out of that high grip from Chuck or <laughs> Chuck is a righty and a lefty and <laughs> he's going to throw something random at any point. So like you have to up your game each day to get better. I think that just dynamic because you do judo every day. Well, most of us who are lucky, I guess some people can't. But when you're doing judo every day, every day presents a new challenge. Right. So you like new person visits the dojo. There's a new challenge or, you know, there's always something to be worked on. And that's kind of what judo is about. Right. Mr. Koga, who used to come to judo, like he was perfecting his uchikomis into his 80s and right. because he loved it, right? Like constant personal growth. Yeah, and it that, never ends. Yeah, and that's kind of like what life is, I guess. I mean, I totally just thought of that off the fly because I couldn't think of a really good answer. I think what would be for sure. I mean, but the, the humbleness that is required for 
a judo athlete, like picture yourself, you're at the very top of your game. You've been training judo your whole life. And you said you were shooting big, you know, looking for jobs. And I think that a hard part for that for athletes is stepping into a new world, a new career where for lack of a better term, you're a white belt again. Totally. And Sounds having the humbleness. Belt. Shout out to all the white belts. Sucks. Right. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. So having the humbleness to to walk into a world that you're not the expert on anymore. For, for so many years, you were the expert in the room. Right. And now you're in this place where, you know, maybe your coworker has been in this business for 10 years while you were, you know, mm-hmm. chasing medals. Totally. And I, 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 again, like I'm grateful to all my coworkers because they're also kind and patient, especially when I first started working there because I was like a... What does it say? Something in a china shop? Um, like a bull in a china bull shop? Bull in a china shop. Just like, <laughs> hey, what? Like uh, definitely rough around the edges, uh, a little not up to snuff on office culture. Uh, and I've learned to soften over the years, you know, but. But even as a judo player, I always remember you being humble enough to ask questions. And I think that's a big thing that a lot of people, people get shy, you know, like sometimes you just don't know. Like, and and, and I've, I've had you ask me questions before. I'm like, huh, like I'm surprised she's asking me, but like, I, I think having like having the the comfort that you have to you know to ask somebody a question like you're you're you are a constant learner in judo. It's not like you yeah. were walking around yeah. the dojo saying I already know all this stuff. Like you were in the dojo as an Olympic medalist, as a world medalist, willing to ask anybody in the room a question mm-hmm. if you thought they had some source of knowledge that you can learn mm-hmm. from. You have to be like that because you can't get better without accepting that you don't know it all, you know? And I also learned that you made the perfect comparison of the job because I wasn't afraid to ask questions, but also you have to be able to learn on your own too. Right. And that's something I had to learn over the years too. Like you can't just ask everybody to give you all the information you want, like seek it out yourself, like watch some video, learn, you know, but I'm just curious. Like, yeah. some people in my life do get annoyed with my questions. They're like, oh, just stop. Like, that's enough. But I'm just like, I want to know every aspect of it. Right. And so, a lot of times, and I can think of a couple times when I've been to clinics with other judo people, and there was an aspect of the move they showed that he didn't address or right. that they didn't touch on that part. And like, I don't know the answer. So, I need to ask. Right. Otherwise, I'm not going to do the technique the best way I can. And, that's just kind of my nature, I guess, when it's it comes to It's kind of neat Gio. when you ask somebody, like, I'll do that with a kid, you know, at a class. We're all, like, stumble on some kid who looks like he's kind of figured something out. And I'll ask the kid a question. And they kind of look at me like... You're the black belt. <laughs> yeah, you're the black belt. Like, what do you... But it's it's actually very fulfilling for them to think, wait a minute. Like, and then you give them that confidence that, hey, like, I'm the coach, but I'm totally willing to learn. If there was something I said when I was teaching that lesson that was able to get through to that 11-year-old... Like, I want to know what it is that worked. You know, as a coach, I'm constantly looking for the right way to articulate a lesson, you know, because judo is so much feel, you know, and as a coach for me, like I've been coaching for, you know, quite a few years now and I'm getting better at it because coaching is a whole new world Mm -hmm. from, from, you know, being a competitor, you know, being a coach and trying to learn how to, you know, engage with every kid, every person on the mat is different Mm -hmm. and the coaching ability of just like touching and, 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 having the ability to reach every kid and every different personality and trying to figure out what works for like a room full of people is, is always difficult to do. It's not just coaching. It's like you're managing a person and a personality and needs. And like, you can't talk to some athletes the same way you talk to other athletes. Like, right. And also to the question point, like the, even not even just the question, but just being open to anything. Like, a lot of my techniques and abilities that I've developed over the years are all taken from somebody else. Like to, to, you know, tout your skills a little bit. 
you were so good at transitioning from Tachiwaza to Nawaza. Like sometimes I would get confused because you were so fast to the Nawaza transition that I couldn't tell the difference between the the throw you were doing and the technique you were already like jumping into. Right. I remember a few really good matches with Ryan Reeser that were like that where you jumped on the arm and even the ref was like, what? Like, yeah. And so like I realized really quick, like that timing between when somebody goes down to the mat and then you jump onto them in Nawaza, like that is that little aspect is super important. And I noticed that when I would not miss that opening, that my techniques were more successful. Not because my technique was the most amazing technique or like so fancy or confusing. It was just that the opportunity window is really small. And I noticed that you understood that, right? So that's just something I took from being open to like, oh, this is another way to do this. If you think you know the way, you're doomed. Right. Because even if you think you know the way, there's another way. And so for you to not know the other way is for you to limit your ability in that move, right? Like by definition. So it's like if you can hone that skill of like curiosity and like thinking that you you can always improve what you're doing, you will always get better if you work hard, that is. (laughs) Be sure to tune in next week for part two of the interview where we talk in depth about transition judo. We're going to close the gap between Tachiwaza and Nawaza. Marty's going to be answering some fan-submitted questions about mat side coaching and more. She's going to tell the story about how her coach called the winning technique a split second before she hit the koji that secured the Olympic bronze medal in 2012. Catch Marty next week in part two, and thank you very much for listening to JudoCast. for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit JudoCast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.